welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Mala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live during the show using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer you. It's uh, my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review, and many media publications. I often see him on Fox Business and CNBC nowadays, uh, today dialing in from India. And uh, in my uh, humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome to Disrupt TV, Ray Wong. Hey, thanks a lot, Bala. I'm here with one of my best friends, Bala Ashtar, the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. More importantly, one of the top followers on CIOs and CMOs around the world, a globetrotter himself, seen on many TV stations, and of course, big in Canada, big in India, big around the world, and mostly you know, every Salesforce world tour we know. So anyways, hey, happy to be here. Glad to see you back here on the show this week. And more importantly, we got some great guests, some great topics. Who do we have first? Yeah, as much as you and I go around the world, neither one of us can land a, you know, intimate interview with Elon Musk, but our next guest did that. <laughs> so we're uh, really fortunate to have Tasha Keeney. Uh, she, uh, Tasha is an analyst at ARK Invest. Uh, Tasha's primary co coverage areas include autonomous vehicles and the world of 3D printing. Uh, Tasha has appeared on CNBC, Fox Business, Bloomberg TV, uh, and, and Yahoo Finance and many other media outlets. Her research has been featured on the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Wired, The Verge, Bloomberg, CNN Money, and again, much more. Uh, to learn uh, more about Tasha's research, you can follow her on Twitter at T-A-S-H-A-A-R-K, Tasha R. Welcome back, Tasha, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me. Hey, great to have you here. I know Bala's going to go deep on some of the areas around the interview, but I want to jump in and start about where are we in the landscape of autonomous vehicles? What's up with Waymo? Are they going to take on Uber? Is Amazon going to jump in? When's Apple ready for its offering? I mean, all these questions are floating around and everybody's jumping in to this big industry. It's about to explode. So what's the landscape look like? And let's set the stage. Yeah, so our, our top line thesis on autonomous cars is that an autonomous taxi could price profitably to the consumer at about 26 cents per mile. So a personal car today is about 70 cents per mile to drive, and that's about, uh, the autonomous taxi would also be about a tenth of the cost of a taxi. Um, so these are going to be really cheap. Um, that's what's going to drive widespread adoption. And it's an opportunity that we think should be valued at $2 trillion in the equity markets today. And we think it's virtually unaccounted for. So that's why we see all these companies attacking the opportunity. Um, so, so that said, uh, where are we today? Well, um, we have a few players that uh, have some timelines coming up um, that, that should be pretty exciting. So so actually, let's start with Waymo. Waymo had said that la the end of last year, they were going to launch a fully uh, commercial autonomous taxi service. Um, it ended up being a bit of a disappointing launch. Uh, we thought they were going to be totally driverless. They weren't. They still have drivers in the front seat. Um, and the, the pricing is not what we expected. And, and that's because of the driver. Um, you know, it's, it's roughly equivalent with Lyft, and it probably operates a lot slower. So it's not a great value prop. 
Um, we do have GM and Aptiv coming up this year saying they're going to launch service as well. And then Tesla. Uh, Tesla is a, you know, totally out of left field um, competitor, taking a very different approach than anyone else. Um, and we think they could be ready in the next couple of years as well. That's awesome. Wow. Speaking of Tesla, by the way, those are amazing stats. Um, um, you recently scored a, a, a podcast in-person interview with uh, Mr. Musk, and it was amazing, full of insights in terms of the autonomous landscape, where Tesla fits in, competitive advantage. Um, and so uh, I'll start, I mean, there was, a, a, again, in, incredibly rich uh, podcast. Um, ARC estimates that the EV sales could reach 26 million by 2023 up from 1.3 million uh, last year. So, uh, and if, if battery production sales um, uh, can scale accordingly. And so what were your uh, conversations with uh, Elon Musk regarding Tesla's growth trajectory from I believe around 240,000 cars uh, today to what it may be in, in, in the 2023 timeline? Yeah, so um, Musk has fairly aggressive growth estimates for Tesla. Um, he, he thinks that he can ramp up growth very quickly. And, and one of the important distinctions that, that he made um, that, that we think is really important to note is, you know, Tesla often gets dinged um, by Wall Street for missing these uh, quarterly production targets or, or you know, monthly, monthly numbers. Um, so, so one of the things that he really wanted to highlight is this is, um, you know, an exponential growth factor. It's really hard to predict that on a short-term basis. Um, so when we look at Tesla, you know, that's why we're looking five years out at these companies because we don't care if they're off by a month or two on production. Um, we just want them to get to that end goal. So, I mean, they're the leader in EVs today. They have, um, they produce more batteries than anyone else in the world. And uh, we, we think that advantage is going to be with them for the next few years. Yeah, no, it's a great stat. And what we've been seeing is that, you know, there's been these other exponential lines along what they have. We haven't even talked about their data services business, all the stuff that they're capturing uh, from all the maps, uh, mm. as well as all the other kind of demand planning pieces that are actually happening. So do you think that they're actually in a place where they can actually not only just do the taxi, but also do the trans, uh, well, basically a tra transcontinental type of uh, interstate trucking, shipping and autonomous trucks as well? Yeah, so um, they have the, the semi, right? So actually, so last night, Tesla had the Model Y unveiling. They put every yep, car on stage. It's pretty exciting. Um, and they had the semi up there. So um, the way that we look at the market is we think autonomous taxis will roll out first. And so Tesla says they're going to operate the Tesla network. So it's their autonomous version of Uber. Um, Elon Musk says, and he, and he doubled down on this promise last night. He said it in the podcast that we did as well that by the end of the year that a Tesla will be, uh, a Tesla equipped with autopilot will be feature complete for fully mm -hmm. autonomous. Um, so that means it has all the features, but there's still some period where they need to acquire more miles, more data to make it so that the driver can actually relinquish all responsibility. So that'll likely happen in the next uh, year or two following that. Um, and then in the trucking space, um, which we actually think will happen after passenger cars, uh, the, the reason is because um, you need to, while, while people don't often think this is a much easier problem to solve, it's mostly highway, you still need uh, to drop goods off at the end location. So you still need to learn those urban roads. 
And um, because you need so much data in order to train these systems, there just hasn't been as much testing on the trucking side. It, it started with passenger cars. And once you move the sensors to different locations, even just like five inches different, um, and you can imagine that's, you know, from a passenger car scale to a truck scale, that's much more than five inches. Um, basically, once you, you just have to recalibrate your whole system. Um, so it's, it's just a new testing, sort of new validation period. And, and we think that autonomous trucks could be cost competitive with rail. Uh, which has roughly the same ton mileage of goods shipped in the U.S., uh, so that'll really expand the market. Wow, that's pennies. Wow. That's cool. So I know now I know why Ray, you have almost all of the Tesla cars and SUVs because <laughs> uh, Elon told Tasha that by year end 2020, people will be able to uh, uh, relinquish responsibilities to autopilot and fall asleep while being transported. And given your travel schedule, Ray, I think this is a key feature for Ray Wong, for sure. Elon <laughs> um, uh, also told uh, uh, Tasha that, um, and of course, ARC has estimated that Tesla's three years ahead of its peers, uh, like NVIDIA, uh, in terms of autonomous hardware. And Elon said that, uh, you know, uh, they started building chips three years ago, and that, and, and that will enable a 2,000% improvement over the, you know, the competitor systems uh, that it will replace. Can you reiterate, uh, Tasha, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, ARC's prediction of how far ahead Tesla is, just based on the consumption of all of the data it, that it has, but also its R&D capabilities and innovation velocity? Yeah, we, we like to say that Tesla is three years ahead on, on three things, which you touched on, um, on battery production and battery efficiency on uh, autonomous hardware and autonomous data. Um, so on batteries, it's both the chemistry that Tesla has that's in the, the battery pack management system that's unique to Tesla, as well as its scale with the Gigafactory. Again, by the end of this year, they'll be the uh, largest global producer of batteries. On um, autonomous hardware, since they, so Tesla started making their own in-house chip for, um, for autonomous, and they're going to replace the NVIDIA system that's currently in cars. Um, the only other company that's really doing this is Waymo um, with, with Google's chips. And, uh, you know, other automakers likely aren't going to be able to do this. I mean, Tesla itself had to acquire a team from AMD just to get the talent and capability. But so we, we heard that the specs of that chip that they're making are, um, are, are an improvement over the NVIDIA system that would suggest that it would take NVIDIA at least another few years to release um, a comparable product. And, and the reason they're getting that advantage is because they're building it unique to their system. Um, so they can you know, get uh, faster processing power versus an off the shelf component, which NVIDIA is making. Uh, that's why it's taking them a few years longer. Um, on the data side, Tesla is the only automaker collecting data off of customer cars they have billions of miles of worth of data. I mean, this compares to millions at the next best competitor. Waymo last year had 10 million miles as of October, I believe. So, I mean, it's an order of magnitude difference and, and that's what you need to create an autonomous car. That's what you need to train your system. And it's the, it's the multiplied innovation of battery hardware data that gives them a three year or each individual segment is three years ahead. 
Uh, yeah, you're right that that each of those right now are, are three years ahead. Um, but, you know, I, I think you bring up a good point that really to get that trifecta, it's like, even if someone catches up on one front, uh, you know, Tesla's ahead of the next, the next one. So. Right, right, right. Amazing. Yeah, no, and it's a big thing, right? Especially when we think about AI and training, it's all about data. That's why Google Assistant is like 10 times better than Alexa, right? Because it's got more phones in play, it's capturing that data, and it's actually creating those types of models and neural nets as well, from what I understand from some of the uh, folks at Tesla. So some pretty wild stuff over there. Um, so what do the legacy car companies do? What do you, is this like a cap table raid on Tesla stock? I mean, the Tesla haters are like, hey, this isn't gonna work this way. So, but but is there really, I mean, is GM dead? Is Audi dead? Do we worry about Mercedes? Like what, what happens in this space? Or, or, or is Tesla positioning itself as a platform company where other legacy companies can build capabilities and, and catch up with this three three year race that they're behind? Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question. So uh, right before we did the podcast, there was a couple of news pieces saying that some other automakers were considering building on Tesla's platform. Um, Daimler is one of them. Uh, yep. G, there's rumor about big Yeah, right. Um, and, and so we, we actually asked Tesla that question, would you allow other automakers to build on your platform? Um, and Elon said, you know, we would except it seems like one traditional automakers don't really want to work with them in general. So they'd only do that as a last resort. And, and two, um, it seems like some of the discussions that they've had in the past have involved automakers saying, okay, sure, we'll take your platform, but why don't you tweak these 10 things so that we can bring it in in house and then it'll work with what we're already doing. And Tesla's just not willing to take on that additional engineering work understandably. Um, so what do we think will happen? I mean, we think a lot of automakers are going to go out of business in the next 10 years. I, I mean, they have to catch up on the electric and the autonomous front. It's sort of like these two waves that are totally changing their manufacturing process, the supply chain, how they run their business. They have to become software players now. They've never done that before. They've never even owned the software stack. And now Tesla's like the only company that has all of this vertically integrated. Uh, so we think it's going to be really, really hard to catch up. They're certainly all trying, but I mean, I mean, just look at over-the-air updates, updating your car by software. That's been around for years, and no other automaker has done that. I mean, it's crazy that they haven't been able to implement this yet. I, I was there when they did them sequentially. So like the thing took like 10 days for, like, for the first car to the last car on OTA. It was like the funniest thing on a 3G network. So we were laughing about that. But, but yeah, no, it, it's definitely like that. Now, this means tier one, tier two OEMs are also going to suffer as well um, because they won't be part of that business. But, but it sounds like one of the things that we've been researching, which is really the fact that a lot of these publicly traded companies don't have the amount of innovation dollars to actually even come through to make this happen. And they've been squeezed out of it. And basically, their shareholders are betting against them by pulling all the profits out and betting on people like Tesla. So it's been kind of ugly. But hey, let's switch topics. Let's talk to your other favorite topic, you know, additive manufacturing, 3D printing. You know, what big changes have we seen in the past 12 months uh, in this space? And, uh, you know, who's entering this market? Because it used to be about all consumer, but now we're talking about some really significant changes in the market. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I love 3D printing is because there's so much exciting things happen happening. And from the investor perspective, it's pretty much being ignored. Um, so if you look at the past year, so you're absolutely right. 3D printing, there was a huge hype in the consumer area of the market. We thought there was going to be a 3D printer in everyone's house. That never happened and it never will. 
Mine's um, collecting dust. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so, but the big, the big opportunity in 3D printing is really more in aerospace and healthcare, these industries where you have really complex parts or customized parts and they come in low volumes. Um, so we've th seen 3D printing break into those areas. Um, so in aerospace, for instance, there are parts flying on planes today that are 3D printed and they're often the interior parts of, of airplanes. Um, so, so Airbus, Boeing, all of, all of the major aerospace companies are working on this um, with companies like Stratasys, for example, the 3D printing manufacturers. Um, 3D printing offers a lot of weight savings as well, so that's why aerospace companies like it. Um, but we've, we've also seen a little bit of a break into higher volumes. Um, so companies like VW have said that they're going to start using 3D printing for some low volume production. That's a really great sign that it's able to go into the end product you know, higher volume, bigger parts that you need really high quality. So, so we're seeing a lot of, you know, exciting things happening, but it's still a very, very early market, we think. Is that also true for the consumer side? Uh, you know, you, you know, Adidas is a customer of ours and they talk about 3D printing shoes. Uh, it, again, mass personalization at scale. Um, do, do you see the consumer space adopting 3D printing in the near term to again, improve the ability to deliver personalized offerings to, 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 to at, at large scale? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you're, you're highlighting on the one great consumer use case, shoes. Um, you're really anything that, that's custom to the body. So, so right now, um, there are some 3D printed shoes and, and basically it's, um, it's sort of, it's, it's custom, it's, it's not customized to the individual yet. Um, some professional athletes have some customized <laughs> shoes, but not, not for the, the everyday person. Um, but you can you can 3D print a shoe in a way that's basically just better suited for a human foot. Um, you get different strength and um, like flexibility characteristics in different areas of the shoe that previously would have been really complex to manufacture, but now you can do that uh, cheaper. And then another great use case is um, eyewear. So yeah. uh, there's a company called Materialize and um, it's pretty early days, but um, they have a, a program out with a company called Koya where um, you 3D print glasses and, and you, so you scan your face and then um, you pick the design of glasses that you'd like. And then, so you have the design, but it sort of tweaks it, you know, to fit the exact dimensions of your face. Right. Um, so I, I think that's where we're gonna see uh, the real use cases of 3D printing out, outside the healthcare space, of course, right. for consumers. Sure. Yeah, and Materialize also has some really cool medical stuff as well as that they're doing. Um, and then, of course, you know, Carbon is the big one with the uh, shoes and the sneakers and all that kind of fun stuff that's popping out there. But what does this mean for supply chains, right? And, and what mediums, right, are we seeing this? Because it's not just plastics, acrylics, and this stuff. I mean, we're seeing some other crazy stuff pop into the market. Yeah, so supply chains are going to become a lot shorter. I mean, um, the, the great benefit of 3D printing is you can 3D print something on demand there on the spot. Actually, one of my favorite examples is um, race car companies are now bringing 3D printers to the side of the track and actually printing, so they could print out a part on demand if it breaks right there. Um, so I, I, I think that'll you know really reduce some footprints and sort of just change the way logistics looks in general. Actually, Amazon has some patents for 3D printing inside the truck on, on the way. So I, I, I think that's pretty exciting. And then on the materials front, um, you're absolutely right. We're seeing some, we have plastics and metal um, historically, metals a lot earlier days than plastics. Plastics is a little bit more penetrated because it makes more sense for prototyping. Uh, but you're starting to see more composite parts 
So for instance, in the aerospace um, applications, we think there's a, a $12 billion opportunity for interior parts in aircraft and then a $12 billion opportunity for composite parts. Um, so as these materials get approved by the FAA and sort of make their way into certifications, I, I think that breaks into new applications. Tasha, you're an all-star guest in that you compact so much insights in 20 minutes. It's amazing. <laughs> so thank you so much for all your stats and forecasts. It's truly, truly fantastic. Yeah, we are live here with Tasha Kenny, rock star analyst at ARC, uh, podcast interviewer. And of course, you see her everywhere from Cheddar, Yahoo, CNBC, and of course, uh, Fox Business and other outlets. Uh, more importantly, covering the cool topics of AV, EV, and of course, 3D printing and where the future is going to be. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on here. You can follow her on Twitter at Tasha A-R-K. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, awesome. Yeah, really. Wow. I mean, <laughs> if I could tweet during that 20 minutes, I think I would have had about 40 tweets. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, we'll try to summarize it in a blog, hopefully, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the near future. So... Yeah, it's, it's an exciting space. Obviously, you know, we see digital disruption, not just in terms of, you know, autonomous vehicles and additive manufacturing. And our next guest is an expert uh, in this area, Talos Teixeira, author, associate professor at Harvard Business School. Talos uh, has worked and uh, has work has been published widely in journals such as uh, Journal of Marketing Research, Marketing Science, Forbes, Economist, New York Times, Harvard Business Review. Before Harvard Business School, Talos consulted with Microsoft, HP, Prudential, and he's given strategic consulting to companies you may have heard of, like Nike, Unilever, <laughs> and countless other <laughs> small brand companies. Small brands, small brands only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he's the author of a new book, Unlocking the Consumer, uh, the Customer Value Chain. Unlocking the Customer Value Chain: How Decoupling Drives Consumer Disruption. So after six years of research. Thomas discovered the reason industries get disrupted, the strategy startups can master to do so, and the surest defense plan for established companies. So we're going to talk a lot about his new book. He's another great follow on Twitter at T-H-A-L-E-S-H-B-S. -S. Welcome, Thomas, to Disrupt TV. Val and Ray, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, thanks a lot, Talos. You know, this is great, right? I mean, last year for me, the book that just got me going was uh, all about unscaling, right? And then your book pops up about decoupling, and it's actually causing me to rethink what's happening with business models and how you look at these business models from both an attacker's perspective and a defender's perspective. But let's start with the concept of what is decoupling, because to me, I thought this was something... Uh, significant that every single business strategist should be thinking about. Sure. So, so basically the idea is the following. Um, if you look, let's take an example, uh, the beauty industry. So um, what is the traditional customer value chain or the activities that consumers have to go through in order to purchase beauty products? Basically, they have to evaluate options. They have to look at all the brands and look at the ingredients. And then they choose a, a few, one or two of these options. And then they need to really test it out, trial it out. Because what's good in one person's skin is not good in the others. What's good in my hair is not good in yours. So you need to test it out. And once you test it out, you see if you like it or not, you buy your first item. And after you buy it, if you like it, you replenish that again and again, you keep repurchasing it. So that's the customer value chain. Um, and 
traditionally, you would probably go to Sephora to do that, right? 20 years ago, 10 years ago, you, Sephora was filled, packed. If you go to the stores, packed with people and the salespeople would put the products in your hair, in your skin, your makeup, and then you would choose right there. And then you would keep coming back to Sephora every time you go to the same shelf and get that product. That is uh, how the established uh, player in the market would do that. What I've observed in the past a few years is startups coming and chipping away at these activities, each one taking one activity and decidedly doing it better for the consumer. So in evaluating beauty products, are they good? Are they bad? Do they have bad chemicals, bad ingredients? Are they good for me? Is there any uh, scientific um, indication that some of these products for these beauty companies might not be good? There's a startup called the Good Face Project which essentially is the TripAdvisor of beauty products. You know, you, why do we use TripAdvisor? Because we don't trust the hotels. They all put these beautiful images and pictures and you arrive there, it's from 10, 15 years ago, the hotel is decrepit. So you know, TripAdvisor has become the big in, in the hospitality industry. The same thing with you know, growing uh, um, uh, the, uh, the Good Face Project in this part of the process. But once you decided that some products are, don't have good quality, they have bad ingredients, you say, okay, I need to test it out. And then you would probably go for another startup, Birchbox or Ipsy, in which they have this beauty product samples that they'll deliver to your house. You pay $10 and you see the samples in your box. You don't have to go to Sephora. And then after you decide, okay, I tested it in my home. I like this beauty product. If you want to buy it cheaper, you probably go to Amazon. Right? And then after you bought your items, if you want to replenish it, uh, Kiehl's has this beauty as a service that allows you to pay not for each item, it allows you to pay for a service. You pay one flat fee and you tell them how much or how infrequently you use and they'll keep shipping it to your house. So what has happened is the customer value chain has been decoupled. Each startup takes a little piece of this value chain away from Sephora, which would offer you all these activities. Each startup takes away one and says, we're going to do the sampling better. We're going to do the, the trial better. We're going to do the uh, post-purchase replenishing better. That is decoupling. That's cool. That's cool. First of all, we've had about 350 unique guests on our show. And I think it's the first time Ray Wong started the segment with a guest saying, you disrupted the way I was thinking. So <laughs> congratulations, Talis, for completely disrupting Ray's mindset. I think that's a first on the show. So, so, so in your book, you talk about, in the last 25 years, you, you talk about three waves of disruption. You said you estimate around 1994, there was a first wave, which was unbundling, and you referenced Craigslist list as an example of an unbundling, unbundling phenomenon. You said from 2000 to maybe the next 10, 10 years, the second wave, which was disintermediation uh, uh, disruption. And you talked about travel agencies and media as an example. And now it's this third wave, which you call decoupling, where consumers want to separate activities. And one of the key takeaways in your book that, that I found was it wasn't the startups that are disrupting this phenomena. It's actually consumer drives the decoupling phenomena. So the consumer drives the disruption trends based on what they need and how they need it. And so I think that was an important takeaway. So what advice do you have for companies in terms of how they can use decoupling to disrupt without technology innovation? So, so you know, um, I went to many different industries and I tried to understand the process of disruption, which disruption in, in a nutshell means a significant amount of market share is transferred from established companies to startups in a short period of time. 
So think Dollar Shave Club, which stole 40 to 45% of the market share for online razor blades from the incumbent Gillette. This happened in less than six, seven years, very mm -hmm. short time span. And so when I looked at disruption, this process of transferring, you know, originally you would think that technology drives that, but Dollar Shave Club did not have any innovative technology. Or you would say, well, it's Dollar Shave Club, it's the, the startup. And then I looked at many other startups and I realized that the startups that, what changes from the startups that succeed and grow from the ones that fail is the fact that they were able to understand the consumer's changing needs, right? Consumers wanted to change their behaviors and particularly they want to reduce their costs both the monetary, how much they pay, the time to get the service, and the effort to do so. And it turns out that startups were just faster delivering these three things on a platter to consumers as opposed to established players, right? And one key uh, um, example that comes to my mind was PillPack. This startup with these kids out of uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, they realized that 20%, 20 million Americans have to take three or more pills per day. And the problem is that they have to get separate prescriptions for that, buy it in the CVS store, and the CVS sells 20 packs of one, 80 packs of the other, 15 packs of the other. So you always have too much or not enough of the other one. And then you have to have some in the morning, others after dinner, others with meal, other with not. It's a hassle, particularly if you're older. And so what they created is this sort of subscription service in which they pack all of the pills in each sachet and it just rolls around in a little box that they give you. And all you have to do is tear it out, take the pills, and then another one pops up for the next day. And then you do that. And in a sense, they decoupled this complicated process of getting medication and using the pills. But the cool story was they told me- The value chain. Yeah. Yes, decoupling the value chain, the customer value chain, that's important. Yeah. We tend to think of value chain from the company's perspective. Right, uh, right. Where am I going to make money? My logistics, mm -hmm. my marketing, all of the supply chain. No, no, no. You have to look at the customer, all the activities the customer engaged in order to fulfill their needs and wants. And PillPack realized they started out with a box that had technology and it had sort of a link to an app and it had touch screen. And then they realized, what consumers want is just a $10 box where you can put the pills in a nice orderly fashion. Yeah. So they disrupted the market with virtually no new innovative technology. <laughs> but innovative insights, which is really By the way, they were bought by Amazon recently for a billion dollars. Amazing. I saw that. Well, Talos, this is actually part of that, right? I mean, we're, we're moving from products to services, services to experiences, experiences to outcomes, and then outcomes to a brand promise. And then even beyond that, we're actually seeing these movements actually occur. But, but I think the key thing of talking about how this is customer centric first, right? It's, it's starting with the customer's point of view, because if you were to do it from the value chain, you'd never do it this way. You'd be like, that would disrupt my entire value chain. Why would I do this? And that's why these companies are getting their butts kicked. Now, which industries and companies are ripe for this type of disruption through decoupling, or is it everybody? So, so Ray, I, I foresaw that somebody was going to eventually ask me that question. Okay, what industry should I go in? And so in my book, I, I compiled the data, and you can see the data here of the costs in certain industries. This is in the past 20 years, what is the average cost to consumer for learning, for healthcare, for real estate, for traveling, for eating, a bunch of activities, and what you realize is the industries that are most ripe for disruption are the ones in which the cost for the consumers to get their products have skyrocketed. Yeah. And what are the top three? Education, healthcare, and real estate. 
The wow. costs are very high in these industries, have been rising much, much faster than inflation. And so the opportunities to reduce the cost, and by the way, cost is not just money, it's money, time, and effort. That's how consumers pay for products and services. So I would say that those are the three industries, particularly in real estate, right? When you buy and sell a house, yeah. you have to pay 6% of commission. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's, there's a co companies such as Compass and Redfin are trying to reduce the transaction cost for people to buy and sell homes. If you don't want to buy a home and you want to live in different places in the world, there's a startup called Rome which allows you to basically rent for three months of the year an apartment in New York, an apartment in Bali, an apartment in, in uh, Barcelona, an apartment where I'm uh, uh, living in the moment in La Jolla, and an apartment where I have to work in Boston, three months. And they, by the way, they ship your furniture from place to place. All you have mm -hmm. to do is show up in different places, right? Mm -hmm. And then Hemlane is this startup that is disrupting by reducing the cost for you to own real estate and rent it out even in places where you don't live. It's very hard to do that if you live far away from your rental property to manage it. With Hemlane, they have a platform for doing that. The, they use technologies, but it's not innovative. It's nothing proprietary, but the purpose is really to reduce the costs for consumers of paying with money, with their time and with their effort. So, so is it a simple equation in that if the transactional cost outside your company is starting to be significantly less than inside your company, you're right for disruption? So, so, um, uh, so, so that's one approach. So that's decoupling. So that's one. The, 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 the key here, Vale, is this idea that, you know, if you're a startup, you know, there's this traditional idea that say, if you want to build a big business, you have to create a product or service that is 10 times better than the current available option in the market. You know, Peter Thiel talked sure. about this in, in Zero to One. Can you imagine a product that is not like 50% better, not 100% better, hmm. but 10 times 1,000% better? It's very hard if you don't have the money, the yeah. thousands of people that work for you, Vala, at Salesforce, <laughs> or the resources to do that. How do these startups grow? Right. The answer to that question is they don't try to fulfill all the activities in the customer value chain. They don't try to replicate Sephora. They just say, we're going to find one activity in the customer value chain, and we're going to do that much, much better. Sure. And so sure. when Birchbox came, they said, we're going to do sampling better because you have to go to the store and you have to spend time and your effort to do that. We're going to bring the store to you. We're going to bring samples to you. Sure. And in that regards, as long as you choose a very narrow slice of the customer value chain and find where it's very inefficient right. and many start uh, big companies, they have inefficiencies in sure. what they're offering to consumers. You don't, sure. you're not always perfectly happy with everything. There's sure. some part there that's bad. That's where you're going. That's your beachhead. And in fact, the costs of those activities, you can sure. probably as a startup founder find cheaper. In, but in your book, you said that established companies tend to adopt two responses. One is recoupling, where they focus on forcing the customer to, 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 to have the combined offerings that they have. And then the other is rebalancing, where you figure out where you create value and how to capture value at every touch point along the journey. It, it, what advice do you have to companies? Because my experience is disruption is not, is not, it's not something that surprises you. You know these startups and companies that are starting to gain market share, and yet whatever inertia, gravity, maybe it's the innovator's dilemma, your, your colleague uh, Clay Christensen at Harvard Business School, what is it where companies, you know, how do you advise companies to get out of the stuck mode and really figure out how to uh, preempt 
and develop their own uh, disruptive strategy when they recognize that they're losing market share. So, so Vala, the, the stuck mode, there's a reason for that. And it's not that these executives in large companies, it's not that, that they're fat, dumb, and lazy. That is no, not, no, absolutely no. not the case. Right. They're actually pretty smart and competent when you talk to them, but they've built, their company was built on a business model and acquired resources that make them the first, the top established player in certain industries within a business model. Right. So Verizon spent billions of dollars and Comcast billions of dollars on putting antennas and set-top boxes in people's house, connecting the homes with fiber optics. You know, and so when a company like Netflix says, well, we're going to deliver video on demand without any of this, you know, they're like, okay, so are we going to do that as well? We're going to implode our infrastructure. So established companies are what I called resource-centric. They look at their resources and they're going to make plays that leverage their resources. Banks have thousands of branches. That's what you know, Bank of America has that fintech companies don't have. So when they look at a new business model that doesn't leverage those thousands of, 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 of branches, they're like, well, we're going to be just one little player. We're not going to leverage our resources. That's right. The way startups think, what startups, they don't care about the resources because they don't have them. What they care about is acquiring customers. And so startups think about leveraging customers, not leveraging resources. And so that's sort of the big mind shift, mind shift, uh, mindset shift that is you know, very different. And you can't tell a big company to just behave like a startup. That's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Now, in your, in your first question is, so how should large established companies respond to decoupling? I've realized that there's actually only two routes. You can implement a thousand different ways. But when, when Amazon disrupted Best Buy, Best Buy was selling electronics and Amazon actually encouraged people to go to the store, get salespeople to help you figure out what electronics you wanna buy. And then they said, Put out, pull out your phone, take a picture or scan the barcode and then buy with us what's called showrooming. And by the way, today 70% of people practice showrooming regularly in the yeah. US. Best Buy originally said, okay, how can we avoid letting our customers do that? Well, let's create signal jamming devices in the store so that they can't use their smartphone. That was initially considered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they realized that you either go against your customer's evolving behavior or you go in favor. And so they eventually decided to go in favor. They matched prices. They started creating ads saying, why don't you do showrooming in our stores? Come showroom with us. Obviously, you can't make money if you're gonna match prices of Amazon. Amazon doesn't have salespeople and at the time didn't have physical stores, all these costs. Yeah. So what Best Buy realized is that they could make money by realizing who was their other customer that they were creating value for. And these were manufacturers, the Samsungs, the Sonys, and all of these uh, uh, um, suppliers, they were getting a benefit whether you as a, as a shopper go to the store and buy a Samsung TV on Amazon or on Best Buy, they were essentially marketing the TV. So they started charging Samsung and all of the electronics re, uh, manufacturers in the world to display the products. And this is what I call rebalancing. Rebalancing means figuring out wherever you create value along the customer value chain, you have to capture some of that value. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, no, we're seeing this happen in every single industry. We saw it happen with pharma going from large pharmas to biotechs, biotechs to genomics companies, right? We're getting down to features. What's crazy is the fact that these, as we get down the line to each of these features, the valuations are still the same, right? <laughs> are paying to get to that piece. So are we seeing traditional companies like a Comcast, Amazon, Costco, are they going to be able to make it? 
Will they figure out the model fast enough? Or will they just end up buying everybody in that space because they can't compete? So, well, I don't have an answer to that question, Ray. It's too big of a question in all these different markets, all these different companies. Yeah. What is going to happen to all of them? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> it's- well, Let's say Comcast. Let's say Comcast. Let's say okay. Comcast, right? Content, network, technology, classic model. They've got the network. They've got the content production that's going on. They're building the tech that's in the place. Um, maybe whenever they see another cool tech happens, they just buy them out of the market, right? Or do they evolve themselves and just keep slicing themselves into more and more personalized content channels? Well, I, think, I think a move to 5G, edge computing, they're gonna to have to, in my humble opinion, think about new business model innovation. Uh, I, I don't know, it's hard to compete with uh, some of the players in that space, but that's my two cents. <laughs> yeah, no, so I, I, I think I agree with that in that regards because the market is coming out with, the market is decoupling Comcast in many different aspects. Okay. And so yes. Comcast is looking and saying, you know, now we have in the past. So that's the key thing that I realized that the game has changed. In the past, Comcast would look, would spend most of their executives time looking at what AT&T is doing, what Sprint is doing, what Verizon is doing. That's it. And each other, one looked at the other, what they're doing. And one does one thing, they emulate each other. So that's why they're very, very similar. And when you look at net promoter scores, it's low for everybody. Yeah. Comcast has one of the worst customer satisfaction scores in all companies. It has worse customer satisfaction scores than the IRS, which takes money for our, from our salaries without us wanting to. That's bad. Why? Because they're only looking at competitors. They're not looking at really, how can I create value for consumers? How can I reduce the cost that consumers have? They're looking at each other. And so they get blindsided and all of these startups are looking at consumers and, and creating these specific niche opportunities and service for consumers, which reduce the costs. And so now Comcast is having to realize that before they looked at four competitors. Now there's a thousand of competitors out there. My students are left and right coming up with startups, right? And so they, they really have to figure out how to deal with that. And the, the answer is not looking at now a thousand competitors. It's looking at the consumer and the consumer's evolving needs and wants and looking at the slices of the customer value chain that you can improve. And by the way, how can you do that? There's a million different ways, but I've, I've, uh, I categorized across industries. There's only three ways to create more value for consumers. One is you look at a value creating activity, the consumer's value, and you give more of that. The other one is you reduce value charging activities. Essentially, you have them pay less for the same quality of service, or you eliminate value eroding activities. Like me going to a store to rent a DVD is a value eroding activity, eliminating these like Netflix did. That's amazing. Professor, wow, we're here with you. Crushed it, and your book, <laughs> Unlocking a Customer Value Chain, is a must read. So, thank you for being on the show. Definitely, we're here with Talis. We're with Talis Teixeira, author and associate professor at HBS, Harvard Business School, and more importantly, um, the author of this awesome book you've got to read, which is really Unlocking Customer Value Chain Decoupling. That's uh, what we've got to do. Follow them on Twitter at T H A L E S H B S. Thank you so much for being on the show and uh, we'll definitely talk more. So, my pleasure, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Please come back. You were great. We could have spent more on this topic because it's so rich, it's so multidimensional. And frankly, you and I, Ray, know companies are struggling to respond to disruption that in many cases has been in front of them for years not just days or weeks or months, but years. And uh, so this is our cleanup hitter spot.
where we bring Speaking about disruption, <laughs> the ultimate disruptive thinker uh, and pioneer to uh, to 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 follow our two extraordinary guests that we had. So we have Dr. Janice Presser, founder and chief technology officer of teamability.com. Uh, Dr. Janice, uh, which is how we affectionately refer to <laughs> Dr. Presser, Dr. Janice. Uh, uh, has owned her own blog. Uh, you can learn more about her on drjanicepresser.com. Has been telling stories and more importantly, helping people tell their stories for the last 30 years. So she started when she was five. Um, in 2001, Dr. Janice began development of Teamability, uh, this first technology to describe and predict how people work together. So it's currently being used in organizations from global uh, Fortune 1000 to startups to design teams, select and develop employees, and improve the culture, just the key word, the culture. Because we keep talking about technology, people process, but ultimately the number one success factor is culture of operation and business environments. Um, so you can follow uh, Dr. Janice on Twitter to, to learn about her wisdom at D-R-J-N-I-C-E. Welcome back, Dr. Janice to Disrupt TV. Hey. So we're just disrupting everybody. What two great speakers. I love Disrupt TV. I always come away with something that I am doing, and, but it's the explanation for it. So now I know why I uh, ordered that makeup and not the other one. <laughs> well, hey, look, happy to have you, Dr. Jazz. Shout out. Yeah. <laughs> I get it at well, we got a lot of topics we want to cover here, and I oh, think there's some cool stuff here. Uh, let's start simple. Let's talk about the podcast revolution and your role in it, because I see you everywhere talking podcasts, talking, you know, going to these conferences around podcasts. Like, what's happening with podcasts? And we're on a podcast, by the way. But anyway. This is like, this is a typical adventure I've had in my life. It's like I've walked through the door that has no sign on it. And I found myself in the middle of this podcast thing. So the history, my, my, I actually have a podcast history, sort of. I was on one of the first uh, internet radio shows. This is a zillion years ago. I think it might have been 2002 or three, but I'm not sure. And the person who had me on said, um, when he was trying to get me to go on, he said, listen, he, I said, you have an audience for this? Who listens to the radio on, on the internet? He said, yes. He said, I have three people and one of them is my mother and she will call in and ask you a question. I mean, what was I going to say? No, I'm not going to say no to somebody's mother. So, you know, being a mother and everything I know, I learned from my kids. So I got into this whole world and I've resisted doing my own podcast. And Ray Yin, Val, you've been part of that because you just invite me on. So I get to have the fun and I don't have to go find my own ovary to actually make this happen. She's pretty amazing, right? So I actually did walk through one of those doors and I uh, became a speaker at Podcast Movement, which is this huge convention. Now, um, I was there at the invitation of Westwood One, which is big terrestrial radio station. Um, I suspect I got invited because they needed a woman to, to speak uh, on this, you know, very all-male panel. You, you know, if you're in technology, it's not a challenge at all. And uh, so I got to go to the convention. 
And I was interested in one thing. Are any of you people making money? And yeah. so I, I, I had discreet ways to ask that. I, I can be semi-filtered most of the time. I'm completely unfiltered, uh, which is why I love to hang out with you guys. Um, and so I, I asked, and I found that really, no, not only is nobody making money at this, but nobody knows what is the business model that's going to work. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I'm sure that uh, some of you read about the, um, the giant sale to, uh, to Spotify of a couple of uh, large uh, podcast technology um, platforms, you know, Gimlet and Anchor big ones. They spend a ridiculous amount of money. And I don't know if you've even ever heard of either of them. Um, but get, you know, but here's, here's the non-disruption about podcasting. They call it podcasting. You know, like the iPod that you had before your iPhone <laughs> replaced it. Yeah, it replaced, you remember, I mean, Ray has, Ray does a great rap on everything that your phone has replaced, right? It's replaced everything but your Swiss army knife. And I'm sure they're gonna figure out how to do that, right? So I, I don't know, if you want to disrupt the industry, you better come up with a more innovative name first or else, you know, manufacture retro iPods that might, that might make. What's well, crazy, right? I mean, the names are like Relay FM, something else FM. I mean, it's like all retro. So uh, you get a great yeah. point there on, on the podcast piece, so. Okay. But. So here's, here's what I think is going on, uh, because I am, at, so after I did this, uh, I was on this panel uh, with some very interesting people, actually, uh, the guy that Howard Stern reported to, or uh, did his uh, show, uh, Opie, of Opie and Anthony, formerly of a couple of places until they got a little too bad boy, I understand. Um, and um, so I was more convinced than ever that actually podcasting myself probably was a bad idea because of what makes a really good podcast and what's going to actually make a difference. And this is what I think it is. I think really the future is going to have to be interactive. Interactive, like teaming, you know, we want to do things together. And the only thing that podcasting does now that brings you together is you recommend a podcast to a friend. And then maybe you might discuss it, but there is no way to actually be part of a podcast asynchronously. That is, unless you're here now and, and you tweet, if you tweet a question or you put a question up on, on the box, um, then we don't know that you're asking that question. And after this is done, it's done. So, so I think that that's going to be a something future because everything interactive uh, is, it's all about the experience. Here's another thing, right? So I have a niche in this, a niche interest, because one of my, um, shall I call it spare time hobbies or my fun things to do is um, I've become a videographer. So I'm actually videographing somebody else's fabulous YouTube series um, because it's, I, it's a way to make interaction part of it. It's very interactive with uh, customers. And it's about rock and roll. You know, when I, you asked me what I wanted to speak about, I said, you know, Internet of Things, the uh, future of work, and, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> um, 
not maybe not drugs in that way, but you know, kind of the new wave of technology, new drug technologies uh, that are replacing kind of the old hashtag SDRR. You guys use that one, don't you? Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Well, clean. No. We're just, okay. we're just high on knowledge. Don't, you don't. You don't have to. You don't have to do it. Uh, but there's something exciting going on in the rock space. So you know, it's uh, uh, you know that the Rolling Stones are older than me. And, and yep. older. Yeah, yeah. And they're still okay. touring. Yes, I am going to see them. <sighs> so excited. There is a longing, a consumer nostalgia, you know, and it's not only the boomers, because if we raised our kids right, we raised them loving the Beatles, the Stones, et cetera, and, you know, Eric Johnson, if you're in my camp. And that's driving legacy marketing, because all these old guys, and they're almost all guys, um, let's just say the Rolling Stones, Beatles, all guys, they are trying to market their legacy and they're tapping into consumer nostalgia. And it's one is feeding the other, feeding the other, feeding, feeding the other. And I suspect that that's those kind of powerful interactions between the producer and the consumer are going to be what drives the next level of Let's not even call it podcasting because you know what you know what podcast a podcast is a podcast is when you can't look and you can only listen that's what you do right most podcasts are consumed in the twenty minute interval between work and home or vice versa um, so when you can have the opportunity to actually see what's going on and we're a little low tech here because you're just seeing faces but when you're talking about a subject that benefits from seeing things it's much more engaging right so i think that's the the future is going to be the video to audio kind of like you're doing i mean no one would ever accuse vala and ray about being you know 10 miles behind the curve they're always yeah. out there pushing the bleeding edge um so that's that's where it, that's where it's going and there's there's a lot there's a lot in the in terms of accelerants, when we talk about podcast one, you're not going to see smart speakers without screens. So you have now this notion of ambient computing at home and at work, conversational environment with, with coupled with screens. So, so you can have podcasts coupled with visuals in terms of how you entertain yourself. We just had a guest who interviewed Elon Musk, and he said, we're feature complete for full autonomy level four, level five. Now, through regulation and testing, it'll be maybe two, three years. But now you're going to be in your car, in your taxi, in your Uber, and you'll have the ability to listen to and watch because you are in an autonomous vehicle. So you have the ability to safely consume content. Now, Wall Street Journal published very recently that Spotify and Pandora are using artificial intelligence to discover the podcast matching your persona and that matching is so well that uh, in 2018, we passed $400 million in digital advertising on podcasts. That was almost a 90% growth in digital ads from 2017. So as machine learning offer you podcasts based on the company you work, the sector you serve, what you share on social media, 
you're going to find yourself more and more as consumers of podcasts. Today, there's almost 18 million unique users on NPR's podcast. There's 18 million unique monthly users. New York Times has got about 10 million unique monthly users. Ray and I have been approached numerous times to have advertising on Disrupt, and we chose to have our autonomy and not have advertisers dictate who we bring on the show and the content we cover. But after 350 unique guests, three years, and having guests like yourself, high caliber guests, I'm certain we could have logos pepper sprayed on Disrupt TV if we wanted to. Um, and at some point, maybe the pressure is too much to resist. But my point is digital ad on podcast space has a growth curve that looks like this. And machine learning will make it such that people are gonna gravitate more and more to consuming con content on transit because this mobile only world that we live, whether you're on a bus or a train or a hotel or whatever, every minute that you can consume content to be smarter, faster, more informed, that's how you're gonna compete in the post-digital era. So I'm super bullish on podcasts because of smart screen, smart speakers at home because of AI powered suggestions and the fact that we kind of live in a completely mobile world now. So you really don't have the notion of going in a classroom or sitting behind a desk in order to consume. So sorry, that, those are my two cents on podcast. That, <laughs> that, that, that was a good $2, maybe two euros. But so, so here's, the, here's what I'm struggling with. I'm struggling with the supply side of this. And so what motivates someone to start a podcast in an environment where the odds of somebody listening to it may be extremely small because there are so many? And is this, in fact, going the way of books? So, you know, if you do the next Harry Potter book, you will sell a huge yeah. number. The old numbers, you know, when I wrote my first book, they said, well, if you sell 4,000, uh, we, where it was 3,800 we break even and we consider it a win. That book sold 100,000 and then they lost the plates to it. But you know, that's a- Oh, wow. Yeah. I, my, my, answer to, my answer to that is- near, near you're a, Whether you're a business mm -hmm. or an individual like us three, if you consider yourself an educator, over time you consider what you do in terms of sharing content as an obligation. Yes. So Ray and I started this as like a fun Friday thing to do, but today Ray and I view Disrupt TV as an obligation for us because if people are going to call us influencers, trailblazers, thought leaders, whatever label you want to throw at us, all the, both of us think we're just helping, <laughs> but it becomes an obligation. So companies that recognize the digital divide that exists with the haves and the have nots, if a company wants to succeed in the fourth industrial revolution, it's your obligation to create content and deliver that in the preference of your stakeholders, employees, customers, partners, communities. So if you're a company and you're not purposefully creating and distributing content on how to improve the society and, and uh, business outcomes and overall experience of your stakeholders, I don't think you're gonna be able to survive and grow in this world. So I view this as more of an obligation, not you know, something that's nice to have. You, Ray, your point of view. Yeah, I was going to jump in and say um, the, the big shift that's happened is, you know, individuals and personalities, we've gone from being brands, delivering on a brand promise, but the next level up is really about movements, right? And from moving from a brand promise to a movement is really where podcasts are one piece of it, right? It's a medium that actually gets you 
to the next level. And the question is, what's your movement about, right? For some, it might be tech for good. For my, other people, it might be, you know, you know, global climate change. For other people, it might be, you know, you know, preserving, you know, preserving a certain set of cultures and values. Right? But the point being is, these are all mediums to actually deliver on movements. And I see, I see that actually working hand in hand. I'm not sure where podcasts are going to go in terms of the listeners, but I do know that, you know, we're all building movements um, and that's where brands eventually are going to head. One of the big things that we know about teams is that you need the people who come up with the big ideas and then push them into strategic reality. But if you don't have the on the ground people doing the action, then that's tough. And their motivation is about doing things together. And that's why what's fascinated me is that it's at the same time I've seen the podcast move into kind of this nostalgia area, there's also an enormous drive on people uh, coming from people to come together and co-experience something like uh, you know someone was telling me about a wonderful experience uh, in a bar but sitting around it was like a vinyl bar where they're playing old music and everyone's talking about oh my god I, the, I was at that concert and somebody you know somebody else saying so was I yeah. and it's a you know experience common experience drives community building and it drives an all positive culture and I you know I just don't feel right skipping over the fact that we're living in a horribly div culture uh, divide politically speaking not only in the US but it's um, it seems to be just in waves all all over and what what does so uh, you know my my final thought is that what doesn't bring us together will probably drive us support. And so, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> the intention was always, hashtag, at Dr. Janice, D-R-T-A-N-S-E. We are live here with Dr. Janice, founder and CTO of Team Ability. Uh, we use Team Ability here at uh, Constellation Research. You can follow her at Twitter, at Dr. Janice. I uh, get a little bit more of what's happening, not only in podcasts, but in SDRR. All right, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday. So this is episode 40 on Disrupt TV. So cool. We are looking at crazy guests coming up soon. Uh, episode 141 coming up next week. Some very, very interesting guests. Who do we have, Bala? Yeah, we just completed episode 140 and it was great. Uh, next week, yes, we have uh, Frederick Laloya, President, CEO of our technology. Uh, he's an extraordinary, insightful CEO. We have Dixon Tang, author and speaker. His book is Leadership for Future of Work, Nine Ways to Build Career Edge Over Robots and Human Creativity. Certainly the machine-human future of work is a hot topic that many executives are trying to better understand. So we look forward to Mr. Tang's point of view. And of course, one of our favorite media thought leaders, contributors, uh, she brings technology, sustainability, and new business models and packages in a narrative that most of us can understand. Heather Clancy, editorial director of the Green Biz Group, will be back on uh, Disrupt next week. So again, a fantastic Friday. Ray, your closing remarks after learning about financial institution points of view and autonomous vehicles, how you can combat digital disruption, and how do we tell stories in mediums that can reach our stakeholders in a meaningful way? 
oh shoot, how do you do this? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, actually, I was thinking about this, and I think with with these disruptive business models that are actually happening, um, as well with these new mediums. Think about EVAV, right? What happens? Um, we're, we're basically we live in tier three cities and get to work and not even have to worry about. And while we are doing that, right, the decoupling that's actually happening in the auto industry is, is a great example, right? Um, EVs are a great piece of that decoupling that's actually happening. Now, if you're watching, you know, if you're handling, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the car, that's a whole different story. Uh, but hey, that's a past vehicle. You do a lot with it. So, but other than that, this has been Great. awesome. Uh, I, 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 awesome know you're, I know you're dialing at 1.30 a.m. Uh, Mumbai, India. So, so really, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for uh, spending your post-midnight with us uh, on Disrupt. And, uh, and uh, hopefully next week you get to learn a little bit about your new book. I know you're working on a new book. I don't want to have any breaking news, but I do think our audience would appreciate knowing that you're working on a second bestseller. So let's, uh, let's carve <laughs> some time to talk about that as well. Well, hey, everybody, if it is Friday, it is Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. You can catch us every week, every Friday. And uh, more importantly, uh, thanks for spending your time with us. So happy Friday. Thanks. Bye, everyone. See you next week. Thank you.